0: Make some noise, let's rejoice that we get to worship Jesus together in this place while we're standing. Make some noise for all of the moms in this place. Happy Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day. We hope that you feel celebrated and loved. We're so glad that you are choosing to spend some of Mother's Day here with us. Welcome to Red Rocks Church. My name's Ethan, take a seat. Since I have the mic, I wanna welcome some moms that are watching online including my own mom, Andy Matot. Happy Mother's Day. The GOAT, my mom is the greatest mom of all time. Uh, happy Mother's Day to my mother-in-law, Krista. A lot of people don't like their mother-in-law, but I love mine. She is awesome. So happy Mother's Day. And my wife was here at the 9 a.m., and now she is with our son. She's an incredible mother. So happy Mother's Day, babe. She's the best. Uh, the gift to all of you for Mother's Day, it's my week for my get-to-know-your-pastor graphic that got posted on social media to come up on screen, so bring that up. Here we go. Doug and Ryan just don't get enough opportunities to roast me, so I'm really glad that they got this chance, and I just wanted to address a few things that are said on here. Number one, when this photo was taken, my hair was very much more in the awkward phase. Now it's grown out a bit. Ryan's incredibly jealous, so great joke, dude. Got me. Hilarious. Low-hanging fruit of making fun of my weak facial hair and my chicken legs. Nothing I can do about that. Our trip around the world and documentary we made that nobody ever watched, but we work into every sermon that we ever give, (laughs) making fun of all of us together. The stats are where it's at on these things. Ryan's is coming out this coming week, so you're going to want to check that out. Enneagram number. Don't care and please don't tell me yours. I know I just offended some people. I actually think the Enneagram can be a great tool, but for most people, it's just like an excuse now. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to help you move, but I'm a six, so <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, that would, that would be challenging for me to help you with that. I'm a four, so there's just no way I could do such a thing. And we rattle that off to people who have no idea what it is, like coworkers, and you're like, no, it was really, that was a fun meeting for me because you know I'm a nine, and they're like, kind of arrogant, you rate yourself a nine out of 10, Wow. Okay, probably call you a six or a seven, but no, it's a good, it can be a good thing. I'm a seven, you'll see some of that today, and that kind of contradicts my rating of my preaching style, which is grumpy, (laughs) which kind of made me laugh, I accept that, but I'm not going to be grumpy today, I'll tell you that. We're talking about wonder, childlike faith, awe, looking at this great God, and in uh, the place that I find wonder, I would say, is joy. Laughter, humor, fun, happiness, the ability to enjoy life, to me, brings wonder about this God who made us and that gives us access to do so. And this topic sounds very simple, and you've probably heard about joy in church before, uh, but I want to talk about the joy of Jesus. This is where I find so much wonder, and I know it's challenging for a lot of people, maybe because of religious baggage. Maybe you kind of view church as a place that's not supposed to crack a smile. Like some of you maybe walked in today or maybe you have in the past at this church and been thinking, is it okay that we laugh at that place? Those pastors kind of make fun of themselves and each other, that the people that serve there seem to really enjoy it and be happy to be alive, like, aren't we Christians? Is that supposed to be how we are? Is it okay that they made some bathroom signs for the guys of this church knowing that guys statistically Like going to church a lot less than the ladies and thought, well, they're getting dragged to church, a lot of them, by a girlfriend or a wife that wants them in church. They don't really want to be there. Maybe we can crack a smile. Maybe we can just introduce a little joy to them when they go to the bathroom because you walk into church and you're like, I don't know what to do. I'll just go pee. So they go to the urinal, (laughs) and it's a chance immediately to say, hey, you know, we can enjoy being alive as believers, and we need joy. I don't think I have to make much of a case for that today. You look around at our culture and society, and it's not just that people are unhappy. There is deep despair and depression all around us. We desperately need joy, and it's really hard for us as broken human beings. We have a negativity bias within us that it takes 14 seconds for a positive memory to imprint in your brain, but only three seconds for a negative one. Anybody agree with that? Anybody feel that? It's kind of our bent is towards the negative. And so as we approach joy, I know there's a couple different audiences in here that might come at this from some different angles. Some people would hear a series about wonder and childlike simplicity and joy, a message about joy, and think, shallow, weak, heard it before, been to church around Christmas, I get the joy thing, give me some meat. And I actually wrote this sermon for you if that's you. There is a little bit or a lot of bit of Pharisee in all of us that causes us to take things so seriously and I think has led us to believe that holiness and happiness are antonyms, that those two things are warring against each other, that you can't have both, and I completely biblically disagree with that. I believe that living a holy life is actually where you will find the happiness that you crave. I believe that happy people are holy people, that we should, the world should see us, holiness means set apart. The world should look at us as set apart living differently and go, where does that joy come from that I want? What do they know that I don't? That's who we're to be, but for a lot of people, maybe because of the church you grew up in or some sort of background, you believe that holiness and happiness can't go together. And I'm praying today, I'm not coming at you today, I'm praying that you would feel freed up, weight lifted off of your shoulders to remember that you have a God who is joyful and wants you to enjoy life with him. Jesus said in Mark ten fifteen, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. In Luke 10, it says that Jesus, full of joy, thanked his Father in heaven for revealing the kingdom to the little ones, to the simple, the ordinary. Jesus taught his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Life is hard, the Christian walk is hard, and suffering and trials will come, and that's why it is so crucial for us to be people of joy. Jesus wants that within us, and some of you in here may hear about joy and think, that's just not part of my vocabulary. I don't feel that. I don't have that. Maybe circumstance, maybe kind of the background you have, whatever has gotten you there, joy is not a thing for you, and my hope and prayer today is that you would taste it. And I'll be so bold as to say from the beginning that the only place to find the joy that your soul craves is in Jesus. He is the source. And a lot of people, Thomas Aquinas says this, no one can live without delight. And that is why a man deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. People will go looking for happiness, for joy. They'll find it somewhere. And we live in this narrative of the pursuit of happiness that I actually think is off. I think that we are all trying to be happy because God put that in us, but we are looking wherever we can and it leads us in the pursuit of happiness to selfishness and destruction. Because we'll do whatever it takes to just feel it at whatever cost to ourselves or to somebody else. And I don't believe that that's the pursuit we should be on, but it's the pursuit of Jesus where we will find joy. My party people, the Enneagram 7's in the room, of course. Hey, here's the deal. Today, it'd be easy to hear this as a party person and be like, this one's easy for me. I love enjoying life. I'm not even going to feel bad about the mistakes I make this weekend. Ethan's telling me to just go have some fun. And I'm not trying to rein you party people in. The world needs people who just want others to enjoy life, but I am trying to give you a deeper, better understanding of what it is that you're looking for. Because some of us, in the name of fun and enjoying life, are coupling that with shame and sin, and that's not joy. That's fleeting. That's temporary, and it's not ultimately what you want. And I believe that there's more than a taste of fleeting happiness for you. So with that said, Let's talk about a little wonder and a little joy. Doug talked last week about creation, right, about this magnitude of God, the universe. We we brought up the, the picture of planet Earth. And you look at that and see this massive creation and this small little planet, and we're just individual people, and yet God comes close to us and loves us. And it brings wonder when you see the intricacy and the magnitude of what he's created. You can be sitting at the base of Everest, be in the Himalayas and just see this glorious splendor of God. Or you can be on a beach, which I think a beach is the best picture of where this is all headed. That's the place where I just feel peace and joy. You see this great ocean and this God, and you're just sitting there like, man, look at what he has made. So I see that in the big creation, but it's also in very simple things that God has done, things he's created, that I see some of his humor. I see some of who he is. For me, Hilarious looking animals are a place that I find wonder. This might sound weird to you, but let's bring a couple up. Just, I look at something like that and I just go, why? Why create something like that? Look at the look on that thing's face. Why, why make something that looks like that? Keep going. Lemurs and monkeys, they are like the kings of fun and mischief, like God just made those guys. Look at the look on that thing's face. That thing shouldn't be allowed to creepily smile at us like that. This next one might be one of the ugliest animals that I've ever seen. And he knows it so fully that he is so used to people taking pictures and laughing at him that he's flipping off the camera, it looks like. But I found a creature that's even more awful-looking than that. There he is. Had, Had to do it. So easy. Sorry, Doug, not really. And then when I was looking at ridiculous-looking animals, I found this, which is incredible Photoshop work. Obviously, that's not real. It's a shark and a horse mixed together, but I was, this, may, this whole thing may be so lost on you. Maybe you're a little more serious. That's okay. I was crying, laughing, looking at somebody thought of that. God gave them a brain to, for some reason, think of that and make that. So I look at some of the things God has done, and I'm like, why? You didn't have to do that. And maybe some of those creatures look that way because we're on the other side of the fall of man, right? But they, these things he's done, intricate ways that he's brought laughter to us, and as I looked deeper into laughter, I actually found that it's one of the most beautiful yet confusing things to philosophers. G.K. Chesterton said, I have often thought that the gigantic secret of God is his mirth. Mirth means amusement, especially as expressed in laughter. Laughter. Many philosophers have looked at human beings and concluded that man's tendency to laugh is too complex to explain with a single explanation. One of these types, Willie Seifer, he said, we do not really know what laughter is or what causes it. The father of existentialism, a deep thinker, Soren Kierkegaard, a serious type guy, he taught that humor is a reflection of the childlike, but it is not inconsistent with true Maturity, which sounds kind of like Jesus saying, You got to inherit this stuff like a child. That there's actually deep maturity in humor and enjoyment, in joy. And Kierkegaard also said that greatness is denied to those he deemed stupidly serious. This is coming from a non Christian perspective of philosophers looking and being kind of confused and perplexed at the roots of joy and laughter within us. Where Where does this come from? It's awfully perplexing if you can't see the God behind it. Where does this come from in us? And the reality is the theology of joy is rooted in the theology and existence of God. It's part of who he is. Like when you think of creation, God didn't have to sprinkle this kind of stuff in, right? He made stuff and he made humans and said work this thing. There didn't have to be this element that we could enjoy it and laugh and have fun together, but it must be so much of who God is so much of his character, because it's in us, right? I see it in my, my two-year-old son, Zeke. That's where we see it the best, is in children, right? Like Jesus said. He's got this joy and this humor, sense of humor in him that that's just in him. And I see this all the time, but I wanna show you real quick a moment that cap, my wife captured this. He was younger than he is now, which is obvious, but it, they developed so quickly that He wasn't saying all the words that he's saying now, he wasn't grasping all the concepts he is now, yet still, for some reason, something about this moment on a show that he watches just got him. So he's watching Blaze and the Monster Machines, which is, I'm sure you all binge it, but it's a show about trucks. (laughs) And in this episode, there's a villain, the Litter Critter, which is a raccoon that's singing about littering all over Axel City, and this is Zeke's reaction. laughing so hard that he literally just falls down. (laughs) He'd never seen a raccoon before. Steph and I didn't teach him that littering singing raccoons are funny, but something just struck in him. And I was hoping maybe those of you that are still not cracking a smile, maybe that would bring a little joy to you today because there's also wonder, like deep wonder it brings to me when I see that in my son and I just think, he's just got that. That's just in him. Oh, because he bears the image of the most joyful most fun, most humorous, happiest being of all. That's who God is. And you may not have been taught that or believed that, but you can see it all through his story, right? Creation, he creates everything and he keeps saying, this is good, this is very good. This brings pleasure to me. This brings joy to me seeing all this. And then he sets up the design of the garden. We joke about this a lot, but it's reality, right? Hey, here's an all-inclusive setup a bunch of trees and beautiful landscapes and rivers and you can eat as much fruit, all the best sugar and you'll never get fat or sick. Oh, and you're the two best looking people of all time. No need for clothes, just go have some fun. That's, that's God's design of the garden. You can't hear that and not see joy and happiness and fun and pleasure are a part of God and what he wants for his creation. That's the reality. And to me, Where I really find wonder is that on the other side of sin, we still experience this. That as broken, fallen human beings kind of doing our best to burn this place to the ground, we still experience joy, and we smile, and we laugh. It must be so much of who God is that it's still so present that even the effects of darkness and sin cannot stop the power of joy. That brings wonder to me, And we, we can see it in the Old Testament, this kind of dark, sad story a lot of the time. Early on, Abraham and Sarah, they are, in the Hebrew, they are described in age as, as good as dead. That is how old they are. That's what the Bible says about them. They are that old, and they've been told they're going to have this miracle child. So when they do, God says, name him Isaac, which means laughter. Don't ever take yourselves too seriously, and don't ever doubt how whimsical and amazing and miraculous your God is. The Israelites have this rhythm of rejoicing. They go through hard times and they'll walk through the Red Sea, they'll come back together and they'll rejoice again. That's that's who our God is. We remember him. We're just gonna rejoice, be filled with joy right now. Heck, King David was basically stripping and dancing in the streets, worshiping, right? That's in the Bible, rejoicing. And this thread keeps going. When the Israelites return from captivity in Babylon, they're back together, and Ezra is reading the law to them, and they are just weeping and mourning at how far they've fallen from God. And Nehemiah stands up and goes, Hey, that's that's not what we need to do right now. We've done plenty of that. It's time to get up and smile and laugh and have some joy. Why? As he says, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Not the law of the Lord, not the strength of the Lord, the joy of the Lord. That is our strength. Is there anybody in here who you just feel weak, like life is just handing it to you right now? You need joy. That is the strength that you need, is the joy of the Lord, and ultimately it leads us to Jesus. And that's what I wanna talk about for a second. I wanna do an exercise real quick. I got from my guy, John Mark Comer. I want you to all close your eyes. Close them and picture Jesus. Jewish rabbi, dark olive skin, Cool curly hair. You can peek if you need to remember what that looks like. Picture Jesus. Okay, open your eyes. How many of you, when you picture him, is he smiling, laughing? Put him up high. Okay? So, you guys, most of you watch The Chosen. So, you're getting a, a great picture of the fullness of who he is. But for majority, the majority of people in this room, and far more the majority outside of rooms like this, Jesus is not smiling in our minds. He's not happy. He's not happy about us in our minds. We kind of picture Jesus as this somber, angry, sad, downtrodden, zombie ghost-like Jedi type dude that's just like be healed. You you are blessed. Blessed are you if you all would just listen to me. Like, that's how we picture him, if we're real. Like, he's just this mad or sad guy. And hey, Jesus is described as the man of sorrows. And that comes with the territory when you are absorbing all the sin of humanity into who you are. When you are bearing the weight of all of the sin and all of history, then yes, that's gonna bring sorrow to you as you look around at what's happened to your beloved people. But he is also the man of joy. And we see that right when he arrives on the scene, right? The Christmas story The angel appears to the shepherds and says what? Behold, I bring good news that will bring great joy to all the people. Jesus simply being brings joy to people. His entrance into the world. And then he's described, Hebrews 1.9, it quotes back to Isaiah, who foretold the Messiah would come and be anointed with the oil of joy or gladness. He could have been anointed with the oil of a lot of different things, but we have him described to us from the prophets anointed with the oil of joy. That's what marks him, the oil of joy. Jesus quotes that same passage in Luke chapter four. He says he's bringing the oil of joy instead of mourning. Romans 14 says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, and people were fighting about the religious ways to do that, but it's of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, that's what the king's reign looks like. Joy is a third of that equation, a huge part of who Jesus is. And when you read about Jesus, what was foretold about him and the life he lives and what people said about him, if you didn't have religious baggage, if you didn't have a church context of thinking that God is stuffy and uptight and angry at everybody, but you actually just read about Jesus, you would have to conclude that he is the most joyful, happiest, most fun, most hilarious human being that has ever lived which makes sense because he invented humor. He's funnier than everybody. He invented joy. He's more joyful than everybody. He knows it better than anybody. That is who he is, and that's hard for a lot of us if we're honest, right? There's a little Pharisee in all of us, and the Pharisees, they had the hardest time with this guy about a lot of things, and this is one of them. It clashes in Luke chapter seven. Everyone's questioning Jesus and rejecting him and complaining about him, and here's what Jesus says to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling out to each other, we played a pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. So first, Jesus is kind of poking some fun at the complainers. Church people used to complain about a lot of things and be hard to please, so thankfully, that's not the case anymore. He's poking a little fun there, saying, I can't do anything right. I I do this, and you say, that's not right, that's not enough. I do this, and you didn't do what we wanted you to do. I can't please you guys. John the Baptist showed up so serious and religious, and he prayed, and he fasted, that's all he did, and then you guys were like, oh, he's possessed. But then the son of man shows up, eating and drinking, hanging with his friends, and you say, oh, he's just a glutton and a drunk. He's a lush. Take this in for a second. People literally did not believe in Jesus because of his joy. They rejected him, the religious rejected him as the Messiah because of how much fun he was having. Out at dinner, enjoying time with people, laughing, telling stories, creative stories to get people to understand what he was talking about. And the religious, they said, Oh, this guy, they knew his reputation. Oh, his first miracle was changing water to ni- over 900 bottles of wine at the most fun wedding of all time. And you want to tell me this rabbi was dancing with his friends? There's no way this man is holy, for he is far too happy. That was their conclusion about Jesus. They rejected him because of it. And when we read the gospels, a lot of times some of this is lost on us, this part of Jesus, because you know, we don't live in a first century Hebrew culture, so a lot of things we don't understand that he's saying that would have been funny and intriguing to people in that time and relatable more so than maybe here in the 21st century. But even so, we can see that Jesus is funny and he teaches, he uses hyperbole, and he's witty. He says all of these amazing things and uses these funny methods to who he is. Now, the authors of the gospels, they're, this is the nuts and bolts of the story, right? So they're mainly focused on the cross and the resurrection, but still, we see this side of Jesus. Elton Trueblood said Once we realize that Christ was not always engaged in pious talk, we have made an enormous step on the road to understanding. So, I want to highlight to you some moments of Jesus where I see this peeking through. In these very serious-seeming gospel accounts, where I see this joy, where I see him welling up some laughter and being funny. And playful in some of the ways that he does things, starting with the most famous conversation of all time, John chapter 3. This is where we get John 3:16. Jesus is with Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, one of the most serious people around. So they're talking, and Jesus tells him, You have to be born again. And Nicodemus kind of slips up and says to this rabbi, He goes, Oh, you're telling me that I need to climb back up into my mother's womb? Happy Mother's Day! That is a bizarre thing to say. And Nicodemus, this very, that's probably the most inappropriate thing he's ever uttered in his life. And I have to imagine Jesus has a little smirk on his face thinking, I'm loosening up a Pharisee. I'm getting a little joy into this guy, maybe seeing things a little differently. Mark chapter 7, the Pharisee's always going after Jesus. No one's understanding his teaching, and he's talking about what actually defiles us. And they think it's all about which foods you're eating and doing the proper things like that. And Jesus goes, hey, it's not the food that goes into you, but it's what comes out of you. And they're all like listening. And he's talking about our actions, right? Like how we live our lives. But the disciples, they're very simple, right? And they're like, what do you mean by that? And Jesus goes, well, when you eat food, it doesn't go to your heart and change who you are. It goes to your stomach. And then a little while later, you're sitting and checking your fantasy football roster. (laughs) This is Jesus going to his disciples so they can understand talking about going number two. He really did that. It's in the Bible. And I bet those guys finally grasped it. I bet they understood what he was talking about. The Pharisees, he has these great one-liners, and this isn't that funny to us, but people would have erupted hearing this about them. He says, you strain gnats and swallow camels. You guys are straining all these gnats out of your water, and you're paying attention to all these little details, trying to be perfect, and all the while not knowing all the things, the giant things, you're taking in that you shouldn't. People would've been like, that was a hilarious way to say that. You painted that picture better than anybody. Mark chapter 12. Hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? I don't know, where does money come from? Who's on this? Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, flip the coin back, peace. They come back to him, Jesus, By what authority are you teaching and doing these things? What gives you the right? And he goes, you guys ask me a ton of questions all the time. So how about this? If you can answer one of mine, I'll answer your question. Okay, bring it on. John's baptism, was that from God or from man? And they're like, they huddle together like, well, we can't say from God because then they'll ask why we didn't get baptized. But we can't say it's from man Because all these people love John, and they're going to be mad at us. They think he's holy. They come back. They're like, well, Jesus, we we don't know. We can't say. And he goes, well, I'm so sorry, guys. I guess I can't answer your question either. I'll check you later. (laughs) See ya. This playfulness, this funniness of Jesus. And he has a lot of fun with his disciples. It's Matthew 17, this bizarre story with Peter, who's kind of an over-the-top, fun-seeming guy. And Jesus knows how to relate to him. So Peter gets questioned by the people at the temple. Hey, does your teacher, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, oh, yes, of course, of course he does. And he's walking away probably thinking, I hope he does. Jesus is kind of a rule breaker. Never know what that guy's gonna do. So Peter walks in to where Jesus is at and Jesus unprompted just goes, hey, Peter, question about taxes. Do you think that a king makes his kids pay the tax for everybody or that he just has all the citizens pay taxes? He goes, well, all the citizens, understanding that Jesus is the son, right? And Jesus goes, okay, but you know what? Those guys are so uptight about the temple tax, we don't wanna cause offense, let's just pay it. Peter's like, okay, great, where's the money? Well, here's what you're gonna do. Here's a fishing pole, you're gonna go out to the lake, and the first fish you catch is gonna have money in its mouth. This is in the Bible. Have you read this story, anybody? And you probably just read it and you're like, I don't know what to make of that, what's next? (laughs) Oh, and Peter, by the way, yours is in that fish's mouth too, it's on the house. I've got us both covered. A bizarre story. Unless Jesus is fun and spontaneous and playful and knows how to speak to fun, spontaneous people and do things that catch their attention. And he nicknames them Peter. Oh, Simon, let's call you Peter, which would be more like him for us saying, let's call you Rocky. (laughs) Calling him to a future identity he doesn't see in himself and also just kind of funny to call the shakiest guy in the group Rocky, right? James and John. Jesus, let's call down some fire from heaven. These people are not welcoming us. Let's kill them all. And Jesus is like, well, first of all, no. And second of all, I'm gonna start calling you two the sons of thunder. There's a badge of honor. There's a nickname for you to match your masculinity. Enjoy your biker gang, sons of thunder. How about when Jesus walks on water in Matthew 14? This is amazing, but kind of seems unnecessary to me. Didn't have to do that. Like when There's a direct result when he's, somebody needs healing and he heals them, like, awesome. But on this night, I just picture, he knows the disciples are out in the boat and they're scared of their own shadow and he's like, I'm rolling it out. It's time. This is gonna get him. Guys, what's happening? And they're all like, oh, it's a ghost. He's like, it's just me, obviously. They're like, that's not obvious. We've never seen anyone do this. And Peter's like, "Uh, Jesus, Rocky here, can I try? Come on, sure, step, splash. And there are millions of sermons from that story. So many cool things that Jesus is doing and I also believe it's a story that the disciples just looked back at and just smiled, just laughed. Their friends are like, what was it like walking with Jesus? Was it super serious all the time? Was he kind of hard to be around? They're like, you should meet this guy. This one night, we're out in our boat, scared to death, and he just shows up and scares us, walking on water. And then Peter tries, and he just splashes in the water, and we had a good laugh about it. After the cross, resurrected Jesus is unhinged. This dude, I mean, he just conquered sin and death, right? So he's feeling pretty good. He's ready to just roll out resurrected life to everybody, and he's playful in doing so. Luke 24, he's walking... Uh, these two followers of his are walking on the road to Emmaus and he starts walking with them and they don't recognize that it's him. I don't know if he's like wearing a hat or some sort of disguise. Maybe they just didn't expect to see a dead man walking and they're walking along and he's like, so what are you guys talking about? Like, oh, this, you know, Jesus and everything that's happened. Never heard of him. What's the story? They're like, well, surely you've heard. Like there was an earthquake. The temple curtain tore in two. This, This rabbi was killed and he's like, tell me about it. I don't even know this guy. So they tell him, and they start to get towards the end of their journey, and he's like, well, I'm so sorry about your friend. I'll catch you guys later. No, 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 come eat with us. So he goes in. He breaks bread. It's revealed to them. They realize it's him. He's back, and he vanishes, just having fun with the disciples. Hey, I'm back. Resurrected life is here. And then he shows up on the beach in John chapter 21, and the disciples are distraught, They think everything is lost. They're out in the boat fishing, back to the old thing. And this guy shows up on the shore and he goes, how's the fishing going? Terrible. (laughs) Well, have you ever thought of this? Just throw your nets to the other side of the boat. They're like, yes, we have thought. Wait a second. We've heard that before. Holy blank is Jesus. And Rocky jumps out of the boat. He still can't walk on water. He's splashing his way in. And Jesus is there. He, he didn't have to go to these guys, right? Like, hey, remember when we were all friends, but then when things got hard for me, you guys all just kind of scattered? He didn't have to show back up here. And he certainly could have showed up angry to guilt them, to come at them. He's about to hand the church to them. And what is he doing? He's cooking breakfast on the beach. He pulls an inside joke on his friends and then gathers them around to have a good time together like the good old days. And it says, because this is Jesus that his disciples worshiped him in Luke 24 and then went back into Jerusalem, sent out with great joy. You remember when Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunk and his walk off line at the end was wisdom is proved right by her children. He's looking at these serious, somber, religious people who are rejecting him because of how much he's enjoying life and he goes, watch what happens when these bad people these shallow, ordinary people that you all brush aside, watch what they do when they get my joy. Watch what happens when they take the good news that brings great joy to all people, which they did, filled with his joy, and we're sitting in this room 2,000 years later across the world because they did. We are to be, we aren't being told, it's, you can enjoy life, but come on. We are commanded to be people of joy, to be filled with with this contagious joy of Jesus. That's what the life of a disciple looks like. And all around us, there are people so disillusioned on this pursuit of happiness, right? Like I said, they'll look anywhere at whatever cost. We all will, because we all wanna taste it. And the problem of the selfish and destructive roads that we keep going on, trying to taste happiness, is, is that we're going to the thing rather than the source trying to get the thing. You've gotta go to the source wanting to be happy, wanting to be joyful, wanting to enjoy your life and have fun. That is God-given, but you've gotta go to him to get it. It is a byproduct. Joy is a byproduct of the pursuit of Jesus, where, where pursuing happiness is revealing emptiness to a lot of us. Pursuing Jesus will produce joy in your life. Thanks. Worked all week on that. Appreciate the nine of you. (laughs) Judah Smith says, true happiness cannot be found in anything unless it is first found in God. I love this quote. We'll bring it up. Leslie Weatherhead, the opposite of joy is not sorrow. It is unbelief. Blunt. To put that bluntly, the joy that your soul craves, you can only find it in Jesus. It's the only place. It is the fruit of the spirit. The second one mentioned, Joy. Walking in step with the Spirit, living with Jesus, that is where we find joy. It's a gift from Him that we all need and crave, but not just for ourselves, for the people around us. Joy is a gift of strength to the people in our lives. And it is a weapon against the enemy of our souls. Yeah. Listen to the, this quote from Earl Palmer Joy is baffling to evil, and always has been. Nothing is so troubling to the devil as the laughter of joy. It is an insult to the terror and gravity of hell. Evil cannot endure joy because evil is focused inward and also because evil does not have a sense of humor. It is a gift of strength to the people in our lives and a weapon against the enemy of our souls. But we live in a fallen, broken world and we face tough things, right? So it's not just like poof, I'm just joyful for the rest of my life. We have to cultivate this within us. We have to, as we all kind of are aware, we have to choose joy. We say that a lot, and we're on the right track. Your brain, your prefrontal cortex, I don't actually know if that's where it is, Ryan. There, there is a joy center in your brain, and it can grow and be shaped, and it can also shrink. You have to cultivate it. And here's the good news. Science says that 90% of our happiness is actually dictated by what's happening on the interior, rather than the exterior, 10% is dictated by external. And there are a lot of 10% circumstances robbing joy from us, but the good news is that 90%, it can be cultivated within us, regardless of what's happening out there. So how do we cultivate joy? Practically. Paul gives us a great little manual in Philippians, this kind of serious dude, Paul, who's living a very, very tough life, He mentions joy and rejoicing 15 times. It's like the theme of this letter to an early church. And in chapter four, starting in verse four, we get this direction. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So I've got five practical things for you to do. Number one, rejoice. Live a life of celebration. This is a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline to celebrate and rejoice. All of the big things and all of the little things, eating, laughing, singing, dancing, playing sports, getting outside, exercising. We need to create celebratory traditions, create moments that habituate joy, that just make it part of life. Celebrate the fact that we can just rest and have a good time together and Sabbath, that we get to sleep, love that. We need to go be around joyful people. Paul's writing to a church, he's writing in the plural. He's saying, no, you do this all together. Rejoice, you are being commanded to. And that goes right into the second one, which is laugh. Earl Palmer says, laughter that has joy as its source is as vital to the health of the soul as it is for the health of the body. And he's right, these are the side effects of laughter boosts your immune system, lowers your stress hormones, decreases pain, relaxes your muscles, prevents heart disease, counteracts anxiety and tension, improves mood, and strengthens overall resilience. The grace of God hardwired into us to just laugh. There's a lot of people out there who just aren't healthy because they stopped laughing a long time ago. What else? Practice gratitude. We should be thanksgiving people every single day, but as human beings, if we're honest, we are professional complainers the messed up order at Starbucks, road work and traffic, whatever the heck they're always doing, literally at the corner of our church at 35 and 183. Pretty humid, too hot or too cold in our church auditorium. But what if we became really, really good at gratitude? Paul says we would be filled with joy from the little amazing intricacies of life that God gives to us all the way to our salvation. David says in Psalm 51, at his lowest, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Some of us just need that restored to us to remember who Jesus is and that he joyfully, he chose to lay down his life for us and that he came back unhinged, ready to bring resurrected life to all of us. Number four, prayer. Prayer gives proximity to God. C.S. Lewis said, if you wanna get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you wanna be wet, you must get into the water." If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Psalm 16 says, you will fill me with joy in your presence. We need to spend time with them. And the last, meditate on the things of God. Paul's saying whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, Talk about these things, think about these things, make these the focus of your mind, and for most of us, if we're honest, our minds don't center on that kind of stuff. The things that we're consumed with don't fit that description, because the news cycle and the apps we're on and the world knows we are bent towards the negative as human beings, so they'll just prey upon that. And we just fix our minds on all this pain and destruction and brokenness instead of what Paul's telling us will bring us joy. We just need to stop, be grateful for the lives that we're living, see the joy of Jesus, have gratitude, and become the bosses of what we set our minds on. And I believe that renewal of our minds is gonna happen when we do those things. I believe that Jesus, he wants for this to go from just chasing a feeling, to starting to choose an attitude, and ultimately just to your state of being. And it should be a legacy for us as believers, that we leave a legacy of joy. This quote says it well. We owe it to the next generation, not only to hand on a legacy of social and human concern for justice, love, faithfulness, and hope, we also owe the future generation a legacy of joy, and we owe humor too. Humor is the joy is the story that joy tells. Humor is the story that joy tells. We humans need the mirth of Jesus not to be humored, but to become more human, which is one thing that humor does to and for and in us. The humor of joy draws us near to Jesus so that we will want to trust in him more. We owe this humor to our children because however serious and heavy life is and can become, The greatest truth of all is this, that Jesus Christ, who gave his life for our salvation, is alive, and therefore, the word that pleases us more than all the other words is joy. It should be our legacy, and I'm not talking about superficial joy. I'm not talking about being Christians that refuse to acknowledge pain and that life is hard and just say, no, everything's great. Not at all. John Mark Comer says, spiritual maturity is the ability to live with your eyes wide open to reality, yet live in a state of joy. I find wonder when I see somebody whose joy does not match their circumstance. And I think, where the heck does that come from? How can you be that way right now? Not fake, not pretending, but truly in a state of being. When James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials, we're all like, yeah, right, dude. But what he's saying is, in the midst of the trials and the hardship and the persecution and the suffering, this is all gonna happen, but the joy comes in the reality of knowing that the faithfulness of God outlasts all of it. That's where you root your joy. Elton Trueblood said the well-known humor of the Christian is not a way of denying the tears, but rather a way of affirming something which is deeper than tears. And it may not feel like this today, but joy is deeper within you and within creation and all of eternity than sorrow. How do I know that? Because there was a time when joy was untouched by sorrow. And there will be a time when there is no more sorrow. There is only the eternal well of the joy of Jesus. It is deeper within you than sorrow. Chesterton said, Christianity fits man's deepest need because it makes him concentrate on joys which do not pass away, rather than on the inevitable grief which is superficial. So the wonder of Jesus is how could he break bread and drink wine and go to weddings? How could he have fun and laugh and be playful? How could he do all this when he knew, and he saw this this painful humanity, when he watched what was happening, when all the while this drumbeat for his life, the cross awaited him, how? How could he be joyful? Because he had the perspective, the eternal perspective to know that, that joy is eternal, the pain, death, sin, this is all temporary, he knew that. And that's why he told stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, that all end in what? A celebration, a scandalous celebration that the religious had a hard time with. Who throws a party for a sinful son coming home? God does. That's who he is. He is the ultimate party person. So Jesus changing water into 900 bottles of wine is just giving us a glimpse of eternity. Because do you know in Revelation where this all ends up? The wedding supper of the Lamb a wedding reception. That's where this thing goes. And I love going to weddings, I love at weddings reminding people, we're just getting a picture right now tonight as we celebrate together, we're getting a picture. As these two come together, we're getting a picture of the ultimate, where Jesus is brought together in perfect love and harmony with his beloved people. And you may hear the practical things, you gotta get close to him and have gratitude and think, well, you always say that stuff in church but I bet if you tried it and understood the posture of Jesus that you would find the joy you're looking for. The problem for most of us is we go about those things or just choose not to because we don't expect to get joy because we don't think he's joyful. But Jesus is described as the bridegroom in this whole thing. This wedding supper is coming and he is described as a groom. So I wanna end with just a silly, but I think very true representation of the posture of Jesus towards his kids coming to him. What he actually feels and beyond what I can even explain, the posture of a groom. If you've ever been to a wedding, you have seen grooms. And they don't tend to be very stoic and serious and down. And if they do, look out for that marriage. This is me at my wedding. This is before I turned into John the Baptist, clean-shaven, short hair. Look how high off the ground I am. Here's me and my wife at our reception. We're just smiling partying, enjoying the fact that we're at our freaking wedding. And we're getting a taste of eternity on a night like that. Here's Doug's wedding. Look at the smile on his face. That's the posture of a groom. And it's contagious because Ryan and I are having just as much fun. This next picture, this is one of our best buddies, Zach, and this is an iconic photo to me. That is a groom in a picture. There's like, there's no sadness. There is only celebration and joy in that photo. That is how a groom feels on his wedding day. Derek from our safety team. Derek is the most chill, unfazed person I think I've ever met. You could tell him literally anything and he's like, cool, man. Just so cool. He's in the military. This dude has joy on his wedding day. He's dancing, he's pointing, he's having a blast. He's letting loose. That's what a groom looks like. Our uh, Baylor Bash bros from the production team all got married in the last year, and I got to go to their weddings and just be reminded again of where this all ends up. Look at Bryce. Now, that Bryce is always smiling, but he was on steroids of smiling that night. So much joy on that face. Next up is Tyler. Tyler's a super chill, kind of laid back dude, but not at his wedding, not on this night. He's having the time of his life, and we'll finish with Scott. Maybe the best picture of a groom right there gathered with his people, just celebrating, filled with joy, that is the posture of a groom. That is who awaits you. Is Jesus the man of joy, playful and fun and celebratory who throws parties and the ultimate one awaits all of us. So I pray that on this side, it would go from chasing a feeling for you to starting to choose an attitude that ultimately leads to your state of being, that you would get close to him and find gratitude that you would build celebration as a spiritual practice into your life, that you would remember the big picture, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So will you stand to your feet? We're gonna sing, and we're gonna rejoice together as a family. That's what we're called and commanded to do. Jesus, I thank you for your joy. I pray that it would bring wonder across this room that as broken people, you celebrate us coming home. I pray that we would see you, the posture of a groom, the posture of joy that is who you are. And I thank you that we get to taste it and not just taste it, but drink from the well of your joy. And I pray that it would move us to our state of being and ultimately as a church family, as your church, that we we would be known for our joy and leave a legacy of your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.